please take your Bibles and turn to um, Romans chapter number 3. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 19 to 26. I invite you to stand as we honor His Word together. Romans, again, chapter 3, verses 19 to 26. This is the Word of the Lord. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. I'm going to embarrass a couple of people this morning, um, but they're not going to be back uh, for a while. They're going to be heading back to Kentucky in a little bit, but it's always good when friends come by to visit, and uh, sometimes you may watch shows when they have these crossovers, and it's, uh, you know, where there's one group of people that are on one show, and they're in another show, and it kind of blows your mind, and that's kind of what's going on right now, but uh, Bill and Debbie Varble, I'm so glad that God brought you here. I need to tell, uh, Debbie, I need to tell just a quick story. I told you in the, in the lobby about your, uh, about your dad. So I was a pastor at uh, Boone's Creek Baptist Church in Athens, Kentucky, outside of Lexington for about eight years. And one of the fellows that took me under his arm was a fellow by the name of Cecil Shore. He was one of the deacons that were there. Now, this was my first time being a full-time senior pastor, 31 years old, going to a church that was about 220 years old. And, whoa, it was, it was there was some really... Um, just some significant things that I needed to learn about being a pastor. And I was really thankful of how wonderful those folks were in putting up with me for eight years. I was really thankful for that. But whenever I got into a little bit of a, of a sticky situation and I didn't really know what to do, uh, right up Gentry Road, um, Cecil lived there. And I, I could always call him. If he wasn't at the doctor, I could always call him. I said, Cecil, I need to talk to you. And he's like, come on up, Brother Matt, come on up. And I'd walk in, and Ann would always give me a Diet Mountain Dew or some beverage, but there was always a Diet Mountain Dew was there. And we would all catch up, and then she would kind of peel off, and he and I would go on the back porch, and they had a number of acres out there, so it was just really peaceful, and you could see sometimes deer and all that going by. And we would get everything sorted out. Well, he would, stra- he would straighten me out on certain things, but we would get everything sorted out. And he went to be with the Lord, what was it, 2020, 21, 19? He, what time, when? 2019. The COVID was just a blur for all of us. Um, And uh, I miss him. Uh, We we would talk about once a year. Can't wait to see him again. So anyway, get awful weepy as I get older. I don't know what's happened to me. I I don't really care for it, especially in front of a lot of people, but here we are. Um. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, here we are. Um, 
So this past week, as I'm prone to do, I'm a documentary guy. If you give me something to watch, I will watch a documentary over most anything else, even sporting events sometimes. And there was this documentary that came across uh, the NFL Network on Vince Lombardi. And those of you that may know anything about sports, and if you don't know sports, you may have heard of the name Vince Lombardi, legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers a number of years ago. Only 57 when he died. I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware that he died so young. But he was talking about how they were talking about his life and how he was not just a coach, but he was a teacher. And he was one of the first football coaches that would actually have a classroom that was set up. And he would go over the power sweep and he'd go over all of these different plays. But he made sure that he was teaching the the guys really well. And I've seen this, this documentary before, but there was one piece of it that I hadn't really caught. And was one of his assistants who ended up saying something that really... I found a a parallel for me as a pastor. You can't coach what they haven't been taught. You can't coach what they haven't been taught. And I'm like, and I always try to apply stuff to where I'm at. And I know sometimes over the years that we pastors have come up to you and we're, we're telling you that you need to be doing something. You need to be coming to church. You need to be sharing your faith. You need to be, you know, going to Sunday school. You need to be doing this. You need to be doing this. You need to be doing this. You need to be and how often do we come alongside you and help you know how to do that, especially when it comes to sharing your faith? And I think that's something. That's what, something that's come out of our Next Steps program. When we're starting to make this disciple-making relationship curriculum is that we, instead of just saying, you've got to share your faith, well, okay, how do we do that? And we're hoping to be able to help you. And so this morning... Rather than talk about the fact that you need to share your faith, I think it's good for us to talk about the faith that we actually should be sharing. I think there's an aspect of it where it's good for us, it is, a good, it is good for us to talk about the what of the gospel and the why of the gospel and the how of the gospel. What is the gospel? Why do we need the gospel? How did it come about? But I think a lot of us may know that. And so we're going to be reacquainted with it. Does it bring you joy though? Does the gospel bring you joy? Does it delight you? Or is it just merely information that you know? Information that you know, and you may get fired up about it. Someone starts saying something that's against the gospel. Well, then you start getting fired up. Then you have a conversation that may or may not be helpful. We need to know what the gospel is. But more than that, too, we need to find joy in it. We need to delight and the fact that God has taken us from point A, which we're going to talk about, to point B, which is a miracle. You want a miracle? Come to Christ. See how he changes you. See how he takes you from where you were to where you need to be. So how God makes us right with him. That's the gospel. That's the good news of what he's about. Embracing the transforming work, not just knowing, embracing it, loving it. Finding your joy and your delight in it. So let's, let's get into what God has for us in his word today. So here's the first thing that I want to just show you about, about what the gospel does and at least what it makes us aware of at the very beginning. And the first thing is this, is that every mouth is going to be stopped and everyone is accountable. I didn't really make that up. That's really there in verse 19, isn't it? Verse 19, it says, now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world 
may be held accountable. All of us know, in, in a sense, what the law is. Even if we're not Jews and we haven't been trained in the Mosaic Covenant and such, we know because God has not only taught it to us, but there's an aspect of it where he gives us a sense of right and wrong already. We have that understanding. If you go back to Romans 1, and starting in verse 18, you see where it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. You say, well, they've never been, well what if they've never been to church? Well, no, it's made plain to them. How? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, creation lets you know that there is a creator. You may reject it. You may take on some philosophies and worldviews that say everything just happened by an accident. And I don't really know how helpful that is. If you're an accident and everything around you is an accident, where's the hope? That, of, that there's someone that is overseeing everything. No, it ends up being to where you're just, you know, you're master of your fate, you're captain of your soul, as that old uh, poem used to say. That's not hopeful. It may sound like it up front, but it's not. So he's talking about here that they are without excuse. Everybody is without excuse. They can't walk and say, God, you didn't give me enough information. And everybody has been given enough information. There was one commentary that um, I read the story about Someone who did his PhD at Harvard in neurological studies, which is basically an advanced understanding and advanced training about the brain. And it was talking about how the brain is more incredible than the most vast computer system in the world because every experience and every word that is spoken is recorded in our brain. So when speaking of Judgment Day, this guy was a Christian, when he was speaking of Judgment Day, he said this. I think that in the last day, God is going to take our brain out of our head and put it on a table in his courtroom, plug in a recorder, and punch rewind. This is a little dated, isn't it? You get it. But when, we are going to have to sit there, he goes on. We're going to have to sit there and listen to our brain replay everything we've ever done, everything we've ever said, everything we've ever thought. The prosecuting attorney will not have to say a word because we'll have prosecuted ourselves. So how do you process something like that? Now, whether God has a recording device and plug it in and rewind and all that, how do you process that? Do you process the fact that, well, I'm good enough and God's a really good guy up there. You know, he is the man upstairs, as so many people say. That's what you, some people say, not what the word says. And, you know, he's a good guy and he'll be all right and we'll be all right. We don't have to worry is that really what the scriptures are telling us? Or are the scriptures telling us something far, far more significant? We are going to be held accountable for everything we've done, everything that we've said, everything that we, it's not about good enoughness. It's about holiness. And so when we look at this passage, we look on and he goes on in verse 20 where it talks about for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. See, the law is there to expose sin. It's, it's to expose the heart and the will of God. It's to show his boundaries. And that's good. Here's what the law can't do. The law can expose and does expose. It can't erase sin. It can let you know 
that you have sinned and it lets you know that you are in desperate need of a savior because all of us have broken it. In James 2, it talks about how you know, if you've broken one law, you've broken them all. Every so often, we hear people say, well, it only takes one sin to become a sinner. That is not right. You sin because you're already a sinner. You're, it, it's not your environment that makes you a sin, sinner. It's because you've been under that covenant head of Adam who, who passed down sin to the rest of humanity. And, and, and messed it up for all of us. And we've been perpetuating it. But here we are. We have to realize that we sin because we've already, we are already sinners. We don't have to teach. Have I said this a thousand times? We don't have to teach our children how to do right. We do have to teach our children how to do right. We don't have to teach them, right? Do what I, I, had a, I had a principal one time that used to say, do what I, do, go by what I mean, not by what I say. Okay. You have to teach your children how to do right. You don't have to teach them how to do wrong. And, and, and this is what is, is part of us. David said in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. Not that she conceived him in a sinful way, but that she was a sinner giving birth to another sinner. David recognized that. Even great King David, he recognized that. So we have to recognize the role of the law and how the law shows us that we're sinners. That's why we need to read his word to get, that, get underneath that. But here's the next part. Number two, that all have sinned and all need his righteousness. So ver- look at verses 21 to 23, if you will. But now, oh, and by the way, that word, but, isn't that a fantastic word? Because it could have stopped at verse 20. At least the concept could have stopped at verse 20. No one's, all have sinned, no one is, is, is right, no human being can be justified, and God would have been completely just in keeping it there. But there's a but. It says here, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. Why does he say no distinction? Because what was going on is that the, these, the, this two group of the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews tended to, like some of us may, if we've been in church our whole life. And mom and dad have been in church. And, and their parents and their parents have been in church. And sometimes we may begin to think that we're saved by our biology. Or by geography. I'm in church. My parents were in church. My grandparents were in church. And therefore, and the Jews were going through the same thing. Our father is Abraham. And we belong to the people of God biologically, by, racially, we belong to him. And they felt like that they were superior to the Gentiles because of this proximity. And so in, in Romans 1, Paul is going after the Gentiles and their sin. And the Jews were like, see? But then you go to Romans 2, where he talks about in verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, will you not escape, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, they're saying you're judging somebody else for what they're doing, and yet you yourselves are doing the same thing. It's called hypocrisy. But isn't that the way? Isn't it the way to be able to look at somebody else's sin and just hammer them, but you look at your own sin, you're like, what's well, not so bad? 
I think that's one of the great things that Jesus does in our hearts is that when Jesus begins to really apprehend you, you don't, you instead of looking at you and taking it easy on yourself, but really being hard on other people for the exact same things, you turn it around. You begin to deal with people gracefully and graciously. And you begin to look at yourself and you're like, how can I do that? But you begin to deal with people graciously and gracefully because you know what sin is. And you know how hard it is for you to be able to stay on the path that God has for you. Well, this is what he's telling us here, is that we can't be saved by our own righteousness. You go to Romans 3, verse 10. None is righteous. Now, I'm not an English major, but I know what the word none means. It means none, zero, nobody. None is righteous. And in case you didn't get it the first time, Paul makes sure that you get it. No, not one. Oh, you didn't get that? Well, let's go on. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You know you're in sin. You know what sin is. You participate in it anyway, whether it's really subtly or whether it's really out there. So, big deal. And sometimes we put Christian language, well, God's a God of grace. Yeah, but do you know what had to happen in order for that grace to get there? We're going to see. But it's been manifested. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament was foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of Jesus brings it. To reality. And it says here that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Faith. Believe. What does that mean? Some of you may have been here. Some of you um, are, are a little newer, but you may have been here when I put the three chairs out here. And the three chairs actually represent three types of belief that's talked about in the Bible. There's a Latin term for it. Latin terms, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia. That means that you know God exists. And every so often I have people come up to me, well, I think they're going to heaven because they believe that God exists. You know, and, and if that was the case, then the demons would be going to heaven. James 2, 19 says the same thing. You believe that there is one God, you do well, but the demons believe as well, and they tremble. It's not just about belief in a deity that exists, even if that deity is the, scripture, is, is the one that's mentioned in the scriptures. Notitia. A census means that you are giving a mental assent. I believe not only that he exists, but that he's true. And I believe that a lot of our churches all across this land have people sitting in chair number two. They believe he's true. They'll get in fights on social media about it. They'll, they'll, they'll bring it up at family reunions and just really make that a great time. But you see over and over, I believe it's true. But it's that third chair that is biblical faith, fiducia. And so the word faith actually comes from a word which means commitment. Faith and believe comes from a root word which means to commit, to treasure, to trust. And if we were to put it in our day, you're all in. You're, you don't, you don't, you know, I got my Jesus time on Sunday mornings. But man, as soon as 
the, the preacher says amen and I'm out the door and we're getting home in traffic and we're calling that person up and telling them what they can do and where to go and we're, we're going all over the place because we've separated it out because we know anybody can fake it for two hours. Anybody can. But there's another 166 that you have to live during the week. Where's Jesus? When something happens to you that you don't expect, where's Jesus? Or is it just all you? See, sometimes we believe it's just true. No, Jesus is life. He's not just a part of your life. Jesus is life. And so when you see this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He could have just stopped there, and it's true. None of us on our own can achieve the status of God's glory. But God loved us enough not to leave us in that position. And this is where we get to number three in verses 24 to 26. The beauty of the gospel is because it's by his grace as a gift. Look at verse 24. And all are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Well, if it's by his grace, that means it's not anything you can do to earn it. If it's a gift, obviously, again, it's not anything that you do to earn it. This is not, we're not dealing with Santa Claus. You know, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Creepy. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're, he knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Why? So he can go down that chimney. It's really a weird story. If you kind of walk it back, he goes down that chimney. So I'm going to be good. So he gives me gifts. And you know what? I think people have appropriated that to Jesus. I'm going to be good. So he can see how good I am, not have to work so hard on the cross and save me. Do you know why this is so important? It, it's really heartbreaking because 30 years of ministry, every so often people come in and they, and they have questions that they have for me. There's things that they need to talk about, uh, whether it's you know, marriage counseling, membership, whatever it may be. And we're, we're, we're having all of these conversations and you know, we begin to talk about what the issue is and, and, and invariably inevitably, I come to this question. I said, well, let me ask you this. What do you think it takes to be right with God? How do you, how do you think you can be made and, and be in right standing with God to where God will say, you're good? I'm going to sit on that for a bit because I want you to think about that answer. What, what do you think it takes for you to be right with God. How about you? What do you think it takes for you? Are you with me this morning? What do you think it takes for you to be right with God? You know what often happens? And it doesn't matter who it is. What often happens is this. They start out with the wrong pronoun. Well, I. I do this. I go to church, I read my Bible, I give to these charities, I help the old lady across the street, I did this, I did that. Someone cut me off in traffic and I kept my cool. I bring traffic up a lot. That's how you can pray for me. And I I kept my cool. Therefore, God's looking at all of this stuff and putting it in the good basket and it's going to weigh like this. And I've had people get very, very upset with me 
because I started asking them, because these people that may have been in church for a while, and I would ask them, I'm like, where's Jesus? Where is he? And the reason that Jesus is absent in that conversation is because Jesus has been absent a lot of times in our lives. We don't, we don't calculate him into our decisions. We don't calculate him into our relationships with people. We don't calculate him into, into much of anything. What we do is we go on our own little way and we execute our law in our hearts against somebody else. And then if we really get into a jam, did, have you, did you see what was happening with Damar Hamlin? The young man who uh, had that terrible episode in that, the Bengals-Bills uh, game? What was the reaction to everybody, from everybody? I have not heard more about prayer. Randy Moss, who was, on, uh, who was one of the, the talking heads on ESPN, the pregame show of the game yesterday, yeah, we all grew up in church. He has a West Virginia accent. I love you. We all grew up in church. And you remember what they said in church. God is good. And all, come on. And all the time. And, and the rest of them were saying it. Dan Orlovsky, who was a backup quarterback for the Lions, he led in prayer a couple of days ago on ESPN. And nobody said anything about it. The, the, the play, do you know why that happened? It happened because there was something that happened that so scared everybody, they realized that they were not indestructible and that they had to be relying on some higher power to be able to maneuver through it. Now, here's the thing. They're talking about a higher power. We know that higher power. He's a person. Three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father who authors our salvation, the Son who accomplishes our salvation, and the Spirit that applies our salvation. This is what's happening. So, now you're like, well, what's this have to do with the Bible? Glad you asked. So, we're here back in verse 24 and are justified. Now, what's that word justify? That's not the word that's like, well, I've, I've done something silly, and so I'm going to justify my actions to you so that you will get off my back. No, to be justified means is that you are under a penalty and God has removed that penalty from you and you are now considered just. You're considered right before him. So what he has done is that we had sin in our account and, now, and, and Christ gives his righteousness to us and puts that into our account. Now what's happened with the sin? Because these two can't coexist. So what has happened to the sin? So you now see the word propitiation. That word propitiation is a satisfaction of God's justice and God's wrath, which means that he has taken our sin and he put it on his son to be paid for. Now I want you to think about over the last couple of years. We've had a lot of court cases that have been going on, a lot of, a lot of injustice that's been going on, a lot of destruction that has been going on. A lot of people have been talking about a lot of things on both sides of the, of the philosophies. But now suppose you're going and you're seeing something terrible that has happened in our world and it goes to court and the people make the case that there's something really significant that's going on and needs to have some justice happen and the guy up there, the, the judge is saying, you know what, don't worry about it. It'll be okay. What do you think would happen? 
it would, there would be a response the likes of which we would not know what to do with. Why do we do that to God, though? Why do we shake our fist in his face, think our thoughts that are rebellious to him, speak our words that are rebellious to him and hurtful to others, go places that we know God's got called us to. We are made in his image. He created us. He wired us. He loves us. And yet, when God comes along and I preach on holiness and sin and rebellion and judgment, and all of us are going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you may in your hearts be like, why would a God be like that? You're wanting God to just say to your sin and all the sins of all the world, ah, no, I take that back. You're wanting God to say that to your sin but you're wanting God to go after that person. Come on. If we don't expect that from our human courts, why in the world do we expect it from the King of kings and Lord of lords? We want God to be just, otherwise he wouldn't be God. And one of the passages that I love here in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He's just. God will call our sin into account. It will happen. Whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever we think, Jesus warned us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He warned us that we're going to be held accountable for every idle word that we say. He warned us, he warned us, he warned us, he warned us, he warned us. And he's just. He's saying, I'm warning you. You have the information. You need to act accordingly. But then you're like, well, it says that we can't, no human being can be justified in his sight by obeying the law. This is where it gets great. He's not only just, but he is the justifier. He makes us just. When we come to Christ and we confess our sin and we take him on as Lord, we are justified. That penalty has been removed. But now what he does is as we live our lives, he's kicking all of the flesh out that sets itself up against him. And that's the sanctification. He's setting us apart for holy use. The flesh is kicked out and all of its desires and want-tos and, and, and the spirit begins to reign full, fuller and freer. The spirit is there all the time. We have to continue to move forward in what he has called us to do because we have been justified. Oh, by the way, one day we're going to be glorified. One day Christ is going to come for us, whether in this life or whether he comes to set things right, to, to set the new heaven and the new earth in place. One day he's going to come and get us, and we're going to be glorified, and we're going to be removed, not just from the penalty of sin and not just from the power of sin, but we're going to be removed from the presence of sin. We're not going to have to worry about that anymore. But until then, here Jesus is showing us that he is just. Our sin has to be paid for. Don't blow that off. Our sin has to be paid for, but it's either going to be you paying for it or it's going to be Christ paying for it. Which would you rather have? Come to Christ. Yeah, your sin, it may be fun. It may be a blast. It may give you that rush. It may give you popularity. It may give you everything that the world is saying, yes, do this. But long-term, it's destructive. It's debilitating. It's It's bad. You can't do that. Christ is the only way. Let me close with this. 
There's a story about a guy named Charles Bradlaw who um, he called himself, and this is a quote, an avowed infidel. I am an avowed infidel. What a name. Could you imagine that on your business card? I'm an avowed infidel. But he once challenged the pastor by the name of H.P. Hughes to a debate. And the preacher, this preacher, he was the head of a rescue mission in London. And he accepted the challenge, but under one condition. He said this. He said, I want to bring with me 100 men and women who will tell what happened when they had their lives changed since trusting Christ as Savior and Lord. They're going to be people who once lived in deep sin, some having come from poverty-stricken homes caused by the vices of their parents. And Hugh said they would not only tell of their conversion, but they would submit to cross-examination by any who doubted their stories. Furthermore, the minister invited his opponent to bring a group of non-believers who could tell how they were helped by their lack of faith. Well, when the appointed day arrived, the preacher came and he had his 100 transformed people accompanying him. But Bradlaw never showed up. And so what ended up happening? The meeting turned into a testimony time and many sinners who were there in the room were converted because they had heard about the testimonies of the changing work of Jesus. So, you now know what the gospel is. You now know why the gospel had to happen. And you know how the gospel had to happen. I worry You're not supposed to worry, Pastor Matt. Fine. I'm concerned. I'm concerned that for whatever reason, the joy may have left some of you about the gospel. You've let anger of life and the bitterness of life and the the hostility of people around you affect you. Sing this with me and sing it loud because I can't sing. Jesus is Lord of all, if you know it. Jesus is Lord of all. Lord of my thoughts and my service each day. Jesus is Lord of all. If that's true, since that's true, since, since that's true, and why are you letting stuff get to you so bad that it's shading and clouding out the gospel? Why is the cross not ever before you and you're letting all of the things of life just blind it out? Let's, let's look to Jesus. Yes, the realities of life are here, but look through it. Look past them and see Jesus. He's still on the throne. He's still working all things out for his good, for your glo- for his glory and for your good. He's doing it. So, I've said a lot of words today. I hope that you leave here just remembering Jesus is on the throne and he's on the throne. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead to give you joy. And if you don't have joy as a Christian, then you need to get on your face before him, get away, get quiet, and ask God, what in the world has happened that has taken away that joy of all that he has done for us? I have to do that sometimes too, but I'm always better on the other side of it.
Let's preach that gospel to ourselves every single day to remind ourselves of all that he is and all that he's done. Heavenly Father, use us for your glory and for the good of those that are around us. Thank you, Jesus, that you're still on the throne. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have been sent to change our hearts and minds. Lord, thank you for rescuing us from our sin. And Lord, if there, as, as Christians, and if there's any here who are not followers of Jesus, may you, by your Holy Spirit, open up our hearts to see the light of the glory of the gospel and the face of Jesus. Help us, Lord. Help us to see the glory and the good that you have put in us. There's no good in us. There's no righteousness in us. What good and what righteousness we have, we give credit where credit's due. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. Thank you, Jesus, that you are Lord of all. May you be Lord of us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're getting ready to sing. And the song that we are getting ready to sing is a song that's of commitment. It's a wonderful little tune, um, but it's a call for us to be committed. That's what faith is. Not just believing that he exists, not just believing that he is true, but believing where you're all in. How about this morning? Maybe you walked in here, you weren't all in. You, you had the knowledge, you could talk about it, but there's no joy. You haven't come to him. You haven't received him as Lord and Savior. There's no joy. There's no delight. Only the cares of this world that are just weighing you down. Come lay it at the feet of Jesus. He is more than able to do all that you need. Let's stand together as we sing. Thank you.
I'm very thankful that uh, God brought you all here today. And there's always a hope whenever the sermons are being prepared and we're praying for all.